One more passage for the sermon, Psalm 63. I promise that we will move back to finish Philippians, but um, when people hurt, the pastor responds. Uh, And so last week, the pastor responded with a sermon on the Lord's Supper and suffering, and this week we'll look and next, next week we'll look at how to face adversity and to do so in a proper manner, I hope. Let's, let me read to you Psalm 63, 1 through 8. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. To see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand upholds me. The word of the Lord. You know, for um, 11 years, I was a sole contractor or sole proprietor, if you will, as a personal trainer. I worked in a hospital for three years doing the same thing, but I went into business for myself and then I was associate minister half a day in training in the morning to make everything work out for a while. But there was one man I trained for 11 years. Uh, when, I met, when I met him, he was at the highest of the highs. And when I left and went to California, he was at the lowest of the low end of his life, if you will. In the beginning of my relationship with him, he had a lucrative medical practice. And he even took care of my wife. Secretly, he would sneak us into his office and do some some tests that the doctors and all the folks at the hospital didn't know about. Um, But he had a lucrative medical practice. He owned a yacht when I first met him. He owned a Learjet. He owned his own airplane hangar. He had his own pilot. He had a beautiful wife, two beautiful daughters, and a very nice home. And in the period of those 11 years, I saw his wife run off with the pilot. He sold the yacht. He had to sell the Learjet. He had to sell the airplane hangar. He moved from driving Mercedes-Benz 500 series to 300 series, if you know what I'm talking about. He lost his wife. He had to eventually sell his home. I was with him when he got remarried to another woman. I was with him when he played Santa Claus at different parties because he had this great big beard, sort of like Matt's, except it was white. And so I saw this happen to this man. And he was going to counseling for $160 a pop, uh, probably about every two weeks, or maybe every week. And at the end of this time I had with him, he stopped and he looked at me as I was every, remember, twice a week I'm looking at him from the front of the treadmill. He always wanted to walk 20 minutes. Some people wanted to just work out on weights an hour. He wanted to walk 20 minutes. I said, okay. 
And then I would take him from one machine to the next. And this is what he said to me. He said, all these years, my relationship with you and what you have said to me has meant more to me than all the counseling I've ever had at 160 a pop. All the time you've spent in front of me and all the time you've moved me around the, the gym and all the time you've contradicted me when I've said things that are not biblically right and you loved me and told me the truth. He says, these things have meant more to me than everything I've had said to me in all these years of counseling. Now, I'm not saying counseling's not good, folks. But what, what am I saying? What was I telling him? I was telling him what I preached on Sunday night, on Monday morning or Tuesday. I was telling him what I was going to preach on the next Sunday morning or the next Sunday night. What was I telling him? I was being his friend. I was telling him what God says. I was telling him what God would want him to know in the midst of all this adversity that he went through. In Psalm 63, David is the king. He's not running from Saul. Tonight we're going to see David running from Saul. We hadn't got to Psalm 63 in the evening yet. We still have David running from Saul. But here David is running from his son after being the king. He's been sitting on the throne. He has an army of men, but his son has led a rebellion against him. And now David has to leave the city that's named after him because his son has caused a rebellion in, this, in the whole area of Jerusalem. And so now David is fleeing. He's left the palace. He's in a desert. And he's going to stand in front of us today and he's going to talk to us while we're on this treadmill. He's going to stand in front of us and talk to us as we move from one weight machine to the next. And he's going to tell us how to deal with adversity. That's what he's going to tell us. Now, last week, we saw that Jesus instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper while in the midst of his suffering. Before I suffer, he was already suffering. He was going to suffer more. And today we're going to let David talk to us. We're going to let David speak to us and teach us how to deal with with adversity, really simple points. In your adversity, turn to God. Look at verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Really easy point. <laughs> what do you do when you're in adversity? Turn to God. I shall seek you earnestly. So here's David in these moments when he's having to leave his house. <laughs> he's turning to God. When he has a moment to think about it, when the we said last week, when the bottom falls out, what do we say? I'm just going to remind you that when, when the bottom falls out, what do people do? Well, they just walk away from God. Where is God? They blame God. They want to be upset with God. They turn away from God. Well, that's not what David's doing. The instinct of a Christian as you're walking on this treadmill, the instinct of the Christian is to go to God. Turn to God. When the Shunammite, if y'all know the story about the Shunammite, the Shunammite's son is out working with her husband and his head begins to hurt and he's sent to his mom and he goes to see his mom and he's, he dies. And so this woman, she saddles up the donkeys and she goes by the husband. The husband looks at the, at the wife and says, is everything okay? And he, she, she says, everything is okay. He's dead. What do you mean everything's okay? Well, she's on her way to see God. God's man. She's on her way. Well, the man of God sends a servant out to meet her. Go take care of her needs. And she bypasses him. You're not the man of God. I'm going to bypass you. I'm going straight to the man of God. And I'm going to fall at his feet. That's what we do. 
That's what we do by instinct. When Jesus is on the cross and He knows that God's abandoned Him, what does He do? Does He say, I won't call on Him anymore? He's abandoned me. No, He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? That's what we do. So here's John chapter 6. All these, some people would, would I could tell you the reason why, but some people even estimate that there could have been 25,000 people at the Bread of Life discourse. And Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And that makes them all mad. Some people believe there could have been that many people. And some people believe at the end of the night, there were only 12 left. And Jesus looks at all his disciples and says, will you also walk away? Will you also depart? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? (laughs) You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. You know, remember what I'm about to say. You know, we're like compasses. You know what a compass dial does when you bring it out and look at it? You know what it does? Flickers. And then it settles on north. That's what we're like. Somebody comes to me and they said, well, Pastor Mark, I shouldn't have done that. I said, well, maybe maybe you shouldn't have. Well, why did I do it? I said, because you're like a compass. (laughs) Because you're a human. Because we tremble. We flicker. And then we settle on north. And north is turn to God. North is what we do. That's what David's telling us to do. Oh, God, you are my God. Not only that, turn to the God you know. In your adversity, turn to the God you know. God, he says, my God. He doesn't say a God. Uh, I tease around every time I, I can to say, do we say the Lord is my shepherd or do we say the Lord is a shepherd? <laughs> We don't say the Lord is a shepherd. We say the Lord is my shepherd. And David's saying, you're my God. I have a right to come to you because you've made a covenant with your people. Second, second Samuel chapter 7. Now God made a covenant with David that he made, made with David that was a little bit different than everybody else. He made a covenant with David and promised there would be a greater king coming after him in the future. But this is all part of this covenant love. And Derek Kidner says this. This is, this, is a, this is one worth writing down. He says, when David says this, he's not groping for a stranger. He's not feeling his way towards God. But the eagerness he feels is towards a friend, almost a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. That's what David's doing. Adversity's coming and he's not turning to a stranger he doesn't know. He's turning to someone he knows very intimately. What's the world do when the world starts going through trials? What, does pe- what do people in the world do when, things, when the bottom falls out? When it's bad, you know what the world does? The world's in the mall. Act like, say, say you're in the mall and you're going down the mall. You don't know where the store is that you want to go to. And so you go up to that attendant sitting at that desk and you say to the attendant that you do not know, can you tell me, can you give me directions on how to get to X, Y, or Z store? Well, that's what people in the world are like. They walk up to somebody they don't know and they ask for instructions. Now, the only reason my, my little, inter, my little uh, illustration falls apart is because that person actually responds and gives them information. But if you are in the world and you... you uh, Don't see a barrier between yourself and God. There's a problem. You go to a God, you're groping toward a God you do not know. 
your feeling towards a God you do not know. You will not acknowledge His Son. You will not acknowledge your sins. And so you're groping toward a God you don't know. There's a barrier between you and God. A stranger, a person who's going through difficulties, and then they start calling to God, they don't realize there's a barrier. They don't realize that sin causes a problem between themselves and God. And so we have people all around who are going towards this God that they think it's their inalienable right to call on Him and to be heard. But there's just that one problem. Sin's in the way. It's completely what we see in this text. I want to show you something. In this text, this violates this text to think that you can call on God apart from getting taking care of this barrier of sin between yourself and God. What's the manner that we approach God? We talk about regulative principle and reformed theology. What's the manner that David approaches God? Look down at verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Now, that doesn't say sacrifice, but that's what's, that's what's going on in that place. The sac- See, one of the things that Calvin said that's so wonderful, I, 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 I rehearse this on a regular basis in my mind. The psalmist is never far Whether he says it or not, he's never far from the mercy of God in the sacrifice. Never far. And so here's David saying, I've seen you in the sanctuary. Well, what has he seen? Well, he's seen innocent lambs being sacrificed for people's sins. And if we take it to the Day of Atonement, he's seen two goats, not lambs. There's a slain goat and there's a scapegoat. The slain goat is the most important goat between the two goats because the slain goat is the goat that's killed, that's put to death for the sins of David and his people. The slain goat is the most important goat. But the scapegoat is like the teaching goat. It's like the audiovisual goat that's brought in front of all the people and the priest confesses the sins of the people on the head of that goat And then they lead that goat out of that whole place by a man selected just for the purpose and he lets go of that goat out in the wilderness. What's the teaching there? Well, the slain goat is the one that was killed, put to death, the innocent one put to death for the sins. But the scapegoat says this is what happens to your sins. They're confessed and they're removed from you as far as the east is from the west. This is what David has seen. And if you and I want to come to God the Father, we have to have the barrier taken care of. And that comes through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So what are we to think of these prayers when men offer to God uh, to, to God prayers that they, they don't know this God? What are we to think of their prayers? Well, we either have to think either someone who offers prayers to a God, they do not know that their prayers are under judgment. Their prayers are under judgment. That's kind of hard to hear, isn't it? Prayers that are under judgment. If you pray to a God or gods that you've made up in your own mind, that prayer is under judgment. Just more rebellious words. You're not coming to God through Jesus Christ. Those are prayers that are under judgment. If you come, Pastor Wheat, Pastor Wheat, listen, I'm praying to the God of the Bible. Well, let me ask you a few questions. Let's get, let's get, our, get things in order. The first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do you call the one true and living God, God? Oh, yes, I do. 
Okay, the second thing, if you go through the shorter catechism, it says, then you have to not only know that he's God, the one true and living God, but you have to call him your God. Are you calling the one true and living God your God? Oh, yes, Pastor Weed, I'm calling him my God. Okay, well, are you coming, third question, are you coming through the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Are you? Are you? That's where people balk. Oh, yeah, he's God, he's God, I'm in a, I'm in a terrible situation. He's God, he's my God. Well, uh, he's only your God if you come to this God through Jesus Christ. Is he your God? Are you, is the barrier removed so that you can be heard? By God the Father. You see, that's the way it happens. That's the way it works. The Spirit of God teaches us about Jesus Christ's death on the cross, and we put our faith and trust in what Jesus did for us, and now we have access to the Father. This is the path. And we hear it every Sunday. A prayer that is not offered in that way is under God's judgment. Just more rebellious words. But a prayer that's offered in this proper way is a prayer that's under grace. It opens and God's open to us and we have his ears given to us. All of this happens by faith in Christ. So as we think about these things in our world, it's offensive to think, oh, well, my brother's over there praying. Well, there's a lot of people who pray a lot of words. If you want to go see some prayers offered for half a day, go look in 1 Kings chapter 18, where they never ceased to pray for hours and hours and hours. And that God never heard, because that God was Baal. And God and Baal doesn't answer prayers, because Baal doesn't exist. Okay? But we're praying to the one true and living God. He gives us a way to get to Him, and that's through Jesus Christ. And there's there it is. That's under, under grace. There's only one mediator. I'm going to stop here. There's only one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Jesus Christ. Come to the Father through Him. Under grace, your prayers will be heard. Third, turn to the God, not only that you know, but turn to this God for love. In your adversity, listen to what He says. Oh God, you are my God. And then He says in verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. David's experienced God's love. He knows the way to God. He's come to the sanctuary and gone through the prescribed order to come to God. And God has traveled down that path to him. Did you mark that down? That's worth remembering. (laughs) He's come and he's gone through the prescribed manner. And God has met him as he's come down that prescribed path. How many times has he done that? I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There's intensity here. We sing in Psalm 42, One as the heart longs for flowing streams, so long longs my heart, my soul for thee, O God. David knows. David knows some things in the past. He's running. He wants to stay alive. There's no doubt about that. Or he wouldn't have run. But the most important thing is not the fact that Absalom's coming after him. The most important thing in his life is to know the presence of God and the pleasure of God and the, and the glory of God in his life, even in this desert and wilderness where there's no water. Verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
David wants what he's had in his sanctuary in the past. He wants it in the present out in the wilderness. He wants all the precious moments. And I hope you cry over precious moments that you've had here. And want to come back sometime. Because there's precious moments that take place in the sanctuary. Think about what David is saying here. We just read through this and we don't, what's, I don't know, what's he talking about? Well, let me tell you what he's talking about. He's been in the sanctuary. He has past experiences in the sanctuary. And by faith, he's beheld the glory of God. Do you remember that part in uh, Chariots of Fire? I mean, can you believe this movie's 43 years old? This movie's, this movie's older than Brian. And Eric Liddell looks at his sister and says, uh, she's all worried that he's not going to go to the mission field. You know, he died in China of a brain tumor. He, you know, and he's all wrapped up and running the 100 meter dash and for the Olympics in 1924. And she's worried that he's going to get wrapped up in that and forget his, his, his goal to be in ministry. And he looks at her and he says, I'll never forget these words. He says, Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. He says, God has made me for China, but He's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His what? I feel His presence, His glory, His pleasure. And that's what He's saying. When I go to church, I feel the pleasure. When I come here, I enjoy the power. I've watched as the sacrifices have been made. I've seen the the outward stuff going on. But I understand that God's forgiving my sins through those things. Behind the scenes. I've, I've seen men read their Bibles. And I didn't just listen to that man read the Bible, but I heard God speaking to me through those words that were read. I've come to church, he says, and I've been delivered uh, out in a field with a smooth stone and a sling against a big old gigantic man. I've had all these deliverances from the Philistines. God has given me all these deliverances and I've come to Him and I've praised Him. And this is what I've experienced in the sanctuary. And I want that out here, running away from my son as I'm in the wilderness. That's what I want to know now. How important it is, is it for you and for me to worship God here today? It's of vital importance when God calls us to worship. These are important words. You were called to worship from Psalm 46 today on purpose. Because somebody loves that passage. And we are called to come here and to be here today. And God is manifesting Himself to us. And so we have these precious sanctuary moments and times where God deals with us. And isn't it interesting that we're all together corporately, that He's dealing with each one of us privately and personally at the same time. I see a person who's grinning ear to ear during the sermon, and I turn over and I see a person over here crying their eyeballs out. Why is that guy smiling and why is this person crying? This person's being encouraged. This person's being convicted of sin. This person over here is being stretched and molded and made and carved on. And this person over here is crying and knowing that God is with them in the midst of their grief. God is at work in us corporately, giving us all these wonderful experiences in this time together. It all happens. He's God. He's bigger than we are. He can do all of this at the same time. God's using all this to deal with us. And then when adversity strikes, listen to me, why do we have, why do we have a liturgy? 
Why do we travel down this road, folks? We travel down this road thousands and thousands of times so that when you leave and you walk away from this place and you're at work and the the bottom falls out, you have a liturgy to follow. God's calling you right now in the midst of your difficulty to, to, to come to Him. Maybe you need to confess some sin. Then you can receive the assurance of pardon. We could go down the list of the liturgy. The liturgy's for you. Every day. Remember every part of it. And if you go to church somewhere where they don't have a confession of sin, you ought to be like my kid who comes back and says, Dad, we didn't confess our sins today. I'm just sick. I need that. I need to know the assurance of pardon. we got to go through this. And David's going, I want all that I've enjoyed here in church. I want it out here in my pit. I want it in the prison. I want it when I'm in the hospital. I want it when I'm running from Absalom. I want all of it when I'm out here sweating my eyeballs out with all these men loading up this truck and making all the stuff in the truck look like sardines. That's what they did yesterday. I kind of watched more. I want Brian on my team. I want some of these guys on my team because I'm a little older than they are now. I used to be the guy that was throwing some of it around. Wow. Wow. But I want to know these things. Well, let me end here. He says, because your loving kindness is better than life. I mean, David, he wants this stuff when he's running from his son. He wants to enjoy. He wants the pleasure. He wants the pleasure of God going through his hair in the midst of this terrible trial. What's more important for you if you don't know God? He says He says this. He says that, because your loving kindness is better than life. Well, what's, what's more important than God and your love for God if you don't know God? Well, it's this life. It's all you've got. You know, there's a man who preaches not far from here who says we need to live our best life now. Well, that's what you've got. If you don't have God and Jesus, if you don't know God through faith in Jesus Christ, all you've got is this life. And not only that, maybe you want to live a long life. <laughs> Man, that's what a lot of people do. I listen, this is all the life I've got. I'll live a long life. You don't, you, so you push death to the back of your mind. You forget that, death, that life is like a puff of smoke or grass in the field that's here today and gone tomorrow. You get on the treadmill and you get yourself in good shape. You go lift weights and you make sure you look good. And you have different surgeries to make sure you look look beautiful just like you did when you were 20. And you don't look like you're 62. Right? You do all of the things. You Maybe you get a little of this or that. But you're going to live life long. In the book, Jane Eyre, this is before Jane Eyre becomes, I think, a Christian in the book. She says this when Mr. Brocklehurst is really ugly to her and says, How do you will, will you stay out of hell? And this is what she said while she's standing on a chair. She said, I must keep in good health and not die. Now, that's a little girl in a chair. And that's, but that's how a lot of people live. I must keep in good health and not die. Or... If you're not going to try to live a long life, maybe you'll just try to live life up. Eat, sleep, and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, folks, I've told you so many times probably already that when I was in California, I had so many people who would bring people to me, families to me who did not uh, have a church relationship, and they would ask me to bury their loved one. I kid you not, I've heard at least five times at the funeral at the at the graveside, I've heard Frank Sinatra's song sung. It grieved me. I did it my way. 
That's how people live. Or there's one other thing on here. Maybe we concentrate and live as long as we can, as long as we have the quality of life we want. There's people who are choosing to find means to end their lives because they don't have the quality of life that they want. But if you're God's child, then you know the love of God is better than life. I'm not saying life's not important. I'm just saying your God is more important than your life. I want to live, and I know you do too. And I think living in this world is so good. We even, as Presbyterians at Good Shepherd, we know how to live it up. Ask what we did last Sunday. We had a gigantor cake. We had a bunch of people happy. We had picture books and we had money given and gifts given. And we celebrated and we started our second service at 1 o'clock and not 1230. And the, and the time meister over here didn't worry about it. <laughs> I've been trying to start the services at 10.01. I don't want to be in trouble. I'm teasing. But we know how to have a great time in this life, don't we? Life is good. Life is wonderful. Have you not enjoyed this life? (laughs) I've been improved in this life. I've enjoyed this world. I've enjoyed Lake Tahoe. I've enjoyed Yosemite. I've enjoyed walking down the canal. I've enjoyed doing all the things I've done. I've enjoyed concerts like crazy. But there still seems to be something in this life that's missing. Y'all forgive me for this illustration, but I'm going to use a Disney illustration. Disneyland, Disney World, Disney stores, Disney movies. I know some of you have strong feelings about Disney. You'll, You'll understand in a minute that I don't love it. But you know... One of the things they say about the world and the land, you know what they say is, is these are the two happiest places in the world. The happiest place on earth. Go there and you'll find out they say it quite a bit. But in the land and in the world, there's something left out. Y'all know what I'm talking about. When you leave the happiest place in the earth, on the earth, something is left out. Now, I'm old enough to know when Disney started. (laughs) I'm old enough to know there used to be only three TV channels. (laughs) Can y'all imagine that? How many billions of channels do we have? Disney would come on when my mom and dad would pack me up and take me to church. And so I didn't grow up Disney. I know you can grow up Disney, but only time, guys, think about this, young people, the only time you could ever watch Disney was 6 o'clock on Sunday night. That was it. John and Martha Wheat packed up me and my two sisters and they took us to church. And we never missed church. And I think that's the answer. Disney's the very place in the world. It's the best place that the world has to offer. It has the best manners. It has the best worldly inclusive love. It has the best smiles and the best characters. But my mom and dad got it right because they took me to a place that didn't leave God out. Disney leaves God out, but Martha and John Week took me to a place where God is in, where God teaches me about Jesus Christ, where God teaches me about life everlasting today and forever. 
This world is amazing. And it has wonderful things for our eyes. It has wonderful things for us to be entertained by. But it always leaves us groping for something that's not there. But church and Jesus and and where we learn about Jesus Christ, he's never left out. We'll never be dissatisfied with the love of God through Jesus Christ. So David's telling us as he walks, as we walk on the treadmill and he stands in front of us, he's telling us to turn to God, turn to the God you know, and turn to him for love. You remember, when two people love each other, they have to be with each other. Now, um, guys, if your wife goes out of town, you know you need her. And, you know, a couple of days goes by and it gets kind of not fun. And you can go, and a picture I've told you before, a picture will not do, your guns will not do, your fishing poles will not do, your bow and arrows, they will not do. Keeping the house clean will not do. Your yard fixing equipment, your weed eater and fixing it all up, it will not do. you got to have her. And David's saying, i got to have you. I got to have you here in the sanctuary and I got to have you out here in my adversity in exactly the same way. I want to feel your pleasure out here just like in there. So it's my prayer this morning in the midst of some of your pain, in the midst of some of your adversity as you leave and you go to a new place, some adversity in all of this. It's my, my prayer that, that maybe you'll have this response like I had when I was a, a kid growing up. I had a grandmother. Big mama, you know, big mama, she's about as big as Titus back there. Big mama. And big mama would come to me at Christmas meal and she'd say, you want some more? (laughs) You want another steak? (laughs) You want a pie? And I would push back from the table and I would say, popping a belt loop open and I'd say at 25, I'd say, that's enough. And I hope that you can say the same. Even when you're in adverse times, I hope that you can say, you know, Lord, I've sought you. And I know those experiences that are in the sanctuary. I know them out in the wilderness. I hope you can say it's enough. Let's pray. Father, we, we are moved uh, by your love for us. We thank you for a path to you through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you come down that path and you love us. Thank you for these precious sanctuary moments together. We thank you for how you've cared for us and met our needs in the person and work of Christ. We thank you that the Spirit of God is at work even now, working in our hearts in these moments, working your truth into us as we walk away. We pray that you will bless our dear brother and sister as they um, prepare to, to drive away in a couple of days. We thank you for all the wonderful times we've had with them. Bless them in this time. Bless us, Father, as we leave today. And may you be glorified in us and may we feel your pleasure in our hearts and lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.